Yeah, leadership is lauded. We've been talking about this for six weeks now. Following is underrated. But as we wrap up our first follower series today, can I simply remind you that following is exactly what God has called you to do. It's what he's called me to do, do, to follow hard after him. And sometimes we get this backwards. So today we're going to challenge you with this idea. Seek balance in your self-leadership. This week, we've got all kinds of opportunities for that. Love is in the air. We all love something. Some of us today love the Super Bowl, right? That's today. I'm curious, how many of you are excited about uh, the outcome of the game tonight? You are rooting for one of the teams. Let me see your hands. This is Indiana. I don't see a lot of hands up, and I completely understand that. How many of you, you're rooting for the snacks? You can't wait for some good, I'm planning to fire up the smoker, oh yeah. How many of you, you're rooting for the the commercials? You're just excited about the commercials coming? I see you. Hey, uh, speaking of commercials, be watching. I just read this this past week. There are two Super Bowl ads that should be showing tonight, if I'm understanding their plan correctly. There is a campaign. It's called the He Gets Us campaign. You know there's an investment that goes into buying a Super Bowl ad. There's a group of people. They're investing two commercials about Jesus. A hundred million people will see these tonight. So would you do me a favor? When you see a commercial about Jesus pop up on your television, first of all, watch it, lean in, and would you simply whisper a prayer? You know, we've been talking about one awareness around here. Pray. Pray that as folks watch that, they're curious, there's something sparked inside them. Who knows what God could do to use those, maybe even in the life of your one, the person that you're leaning into. Maybe you even ask them later, did you see that commercial? And maybe even use that as an excuse to have a dialogue with them. Leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but following is exactly what he called you to do. So that's Super Bowl today. Tomorrow is Monday. Monday is nothing. There's nothing special going on Monday. Tuesday, though, fellas, let me give you, this is the warning. You've got just a couple of days for those overpriced chocolates and flowers and greeting cards. Tuesday is Valentine's Day. Love is in the air. Self-leadership, this is valuable. I want to play a little game. Speaking of love being in the air. I was a youth pastor in the 90s, in the early 2000s. Back in those, that era of worship, I would be at a group, uh, like a, a big old gathering of high school students, thousands of high school kids in the room, and the Jesus is my boyfriend worship era. I don't know if you remember some of these songs, but I'd be hearing the lyrics of a song, and I'd look sideways, and I would think, do I need to chastise them for singing those lyrics right now? Who are they? What is this about? So I'll play a little game. So turn to whoever's next to you. We're going to put some lyrics up on the screen, and this is a song we're going to call it um, Hillsong or Love Song. I think we might even have some music to go along with that. Let's play a little game. You award one another bonus points if you get the uh, lyric correct. You're deciding, is this a worship song or is this a love song? You tracking with me? This is interactive. You can talk with one another. Here are the first lyrics. Let's put them up. A sloppy wet kiss and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. Is this worship or love song? You choose. Tell one another. Say it out loud. Here we go. The answer is 
This is a worship song. This is how he loves. Jesus culture has redone it, but this is an old David Crowder song from when I was a youth pastor. This is the song I'm talking about. Be like, wait, what are we singing about right now? Okay, here we go. Here's the next lyric. You're here. There's nothing I fear, and I know that my heart will go on. Worship song, love song. You decide. And the answer is, if you've ever seen the movie Titanic, you know that Celine Dion song. All right, how about this one? Here's the lyric. I can see the love in your eyes laying yourself down. Oh, oh, talk amongst yourselves. Are you awarding one another points on this as well? Do that. There's a thousand bonus points at the end if you get them all right. The answer is worship. It's actually Hillsong. See what I did there? All right, here are the next, next lyrics right here. You're my end and my beginning. Even when I lose, I'm winning. Worship, love song. The answer is it's a love song, John Legend. All right, here's the lyrics. You're still the one I run to, the one I belong to. If you came of age in the 90s like this guy, you recognize that that is a love song at Shania Twain. I heard it right here. All right, how about this one? No one is as lovely as you are. There's no one else who has my heart. Ooh, I'm going to stump you on this one. Worship or love song? It is worship. Oh, did I get some of you on that one? How about this one? And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. This is last but not least. What is it? Worship, love song. This is a love song to Jesus. It's a, it's a love song <laughs> to Jesus. That one also was David Crowder. That was another one in the 90s. I'd go, wait, what? What were we singing about here? All right, today I want to talk to you about, as we conclude this series, John. Each week we've been looking at one of the disciples of Jesus. Today we're looking at John. He's the apostle of love. And I'm going to try to bridge Super Bowl, Valentine's Day, first follower series. Here we go. The title of today's message is Love the Following. The apostle John was a prolific writer. Behind Paul, behind Luke, he wrote much of the New Testament, only behind those two. Actually, he wrote a gospel. The Gospel of John was written by the guy we're talking about today. He wrote three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's convenient that they named them after him. That's helpful, isn't it? Skip Jude, he also wrote the book, the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, a prolific writer. His favorite words as we unpack those documents, his favorite words that he oftentimes uses, I love this, he uses the word truth a whole bunch of times. He uses the word love, Valentine's Day, right? A whole bunch of times. He loved being a witness for Jesus and to speak truth about who Jesus was to a world around him. Those are the three words that he uses over and over again. In his Gospels, we catch a view of his view of Christ Jesus the preeminence of Christ. In his epistles, the letters that he wrote to the early church, he talks about how he would deal with the church. And he encouraged them. Oftentimes he uses the phrase, my dear children, I love that. In Revelation, he writes the book of Revelation, we get his view of the future, yes. But in my opinion, it's a whole lot more about the present as he's pastoring a group of people. If you look at the book of Revelation, like chapter 4, he writes, the, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. 
to the angel of the church of Laodicea, right? There's seven churches there. He knew those churches well. He was on like the traveling circuit, speaking and pastoring those churches. Actually, if you look at them, geographically speaking, he could travel to each of those churches inside of a two-week period of time. And he did that during the timeline of his life. I think he's speaking oftentimes in the present in the book of Revelation. He's inside of Jesus' inner circle. It's Peter, James, John. This is the guy we're talking about today. Actually, in the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 12, we see he takes kind of a backseat to the leadership of the apostle Peter. He's there, but we don't see much of him. But after that, oh my goodness, we see a lot from John. Why? We've talked about this each week, how the disciples of Jesus died. Many of them died as martyrs. They died for their faith in Jesus. Not John. John actually outlived all of the others. He lived into some influence, and God used him in some amazing ways. Actually, if we can today, I want to look at the timeline of John's life, and then I want to layer some truths over the top of that. Let's go ahead and put up this timeline of John's life. And I want to show you, you've probably been wondering what in the world this is. Well, this, we're going to treat this today as a timeline. You envision the beginning of John's story, the end of John's story. Let's kind of just chart out, if we can, what he did when. Let's start over here. By the way, these dates were not positive about how this lines up with Jesus. Some scholars would say that you don't start with Jesus at zero, that split between B.C. and A.D. or B.C.E. and C.E. Maybe Jesus was born even up to four years before the timeline that we have. But the important thing to recognize is that Jesus splits history in, in half. I mean, all of history is divided by this very important moment when Jesus comes to earth. So we don't know exactly where it is, but somewhere roughly around 28 to 30 A.D., you've got John as Jesus' disciple. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. So much of what we think about the disciples, and specifically John, is during three years of his life. There's a whole lot more of his life on his timeline to live after that moment, but you see that point there. Then you skip ahead to the next season of his life, the next part of the timeline of his life. Scholars debate this just a little bit. We don't know exactly how long John was in Jerusalem. He was there at least until A.D. 50, the first Jerusalem council. He's there, Acts chapter 15. We don't know if it's, that's the point that he went to Ephesus, or maybe he was there until as late as A.D. 50, But in A.D. 50, a whole bunch of people left town because in A.D. 50, the Roman legions came in and absolutely sacked Jerusalem, and the church went into intense persecution, and they were scattered all over the known world. At that point for sure, sometime between 50 and 70, we find John in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, pastoring, specifically seven churches that he writes to later in the book of Revelation. If you look at A.D. 70, we know for sure there from 70 to 95, he's serving as an elder in Ephesus. And then if you look toward the end of his timeline, this is when he becomes a prolific writer. In somewhere between 85 and 90, he writes the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's the guy we're talking about today. Then you skip ahead just a few years, somewhere between 90 and 94, he writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Before his death somewhere between 96 and 100, 
he is exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and he writes the book of Revelation. We still read it today. If we can, let's layer some of other history on top of that same timeline. And this gives you some context to understanding how John matured. Look at this. Somewhere around 35, Paul is converted to the faith. Somewhere around 44 AD, this is where James, his brother, remember James and John, the sons of thunder, he's martyred for his faith. Skip ahead a few years in the 60s, turbulent decade, Peter and Paul are martyred for their faith. In my opinion, Peter is earlier in that decade. Paul is toward the end of that decade. There's a Jewish revolt. We talked about that just a little bit ago in 70 AD. Jerusalem is destroyed, absolutely sacked. Then Domitian, the emperor Domitian reigns, comes to power. There were emperors before him and after him that were not kind to Christians, but he, oh, he did some horrible things to our early spiritual forefathers. It's during his reign, you see, uh, John does some of his prolific writing, including the book of Revelation. Actually, I want to point out to you that it is in my opinion that so much of the book of Revelation, we're the secondary audience for it, right? Right? There was a primary audience, and we make Revelation so much about future events. One of these days, Jesus is going to come back, and yes, that's true. But I think there's an awful lot in the book of Revelation that John's original audience, they, they, got, the, they got it. It's almost like they had the decoder ring. They understood some of the, the coded language that he was using. Let me say it this way. When you think about the book of Revelation, don't get captured by one of these days thinking. Don't think that this is all about what's going to happen, but rather, what truth is there today? I mean, Jesus will come back, but you're called to follow first these days. Jerome, one of the early church historians, as he comments on Galatians, he says that the Apostle John was so frail toward the end of his timeline that he had to be carried into the church. One phrase that was constantly on his lips was this. He said, little children love one another. And when he asked why he said this, he always replied, quote, it is the Lord's command, and if this alone is done, it is enough. Somewhere, somewhere along this timeline, these immature, rough, blue-collar fishermen, seven of the 12 that Jesus asked to follow him that came from this little town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They matured in their faith, and they went from roughneck to fully devoted followers of Jesus. John was not martyred on his timeline. He got to die a death of natural causes, and because of that, he got to grow old. John matured. John matured. He got to mature. There's a long journey between the nickname Son of Thunder and his long-in-the-tooth statements at the end of his life. First, second, third John and Revelation, there's a whole lot of just beautiful statements there that show that he has matured in his faith, including this one in First John chapter 2. He's writing to some of his spiritual grandkids or spiritual great-grandkids, or spiritual great-great-grandkids, as you pray for your one this evening when you watch those Super Bowl commercials. You ever stop and think about that? That when you invest, you have one life to invest, who's the one life you're investing? And when you invest in somebody for Jesus, 
they might tell somebody about Jesus. That person might tell somebody about Jesus. You could have spiritual grandkids or great-grandkids or great-great-grandkids. This happened to John at the end of his life. I love this. First John chapter 2, he says, And now, dear children, continue in him, Jesus, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And then I love this. He says, So what great love the Father has lavished on us that we get to be called children of God. This is a touchdown moment. I'm going to try to weave some football imagery through this statement, this sermon as well, not make it all about lovey-dovey stuff, but there's some football imagery here. This, this is a touchdown moment for John. Can we talk about football for a second? Can I, in this moment, take this, and instead of talking about it exclusively as a timeline, could we also, could we make it about a balance beam as well? Did you know this? Did you know that some football players take ballet? Why? Well, for balance reasons. I've got a picture here I want to show you. This is an old newspaper clipping. This is Herschel Walker. Oh, my goodness. When he retired, he had uh, rushed for 13,084 all-purpose yards. He had scored a total of 82 touchdowns. And that's him. He practiced ballet. Why? Because, oh, he scored touchdowns with raw power, right? But he also, as a running back, had to learn how to tuck that football and dodge and weave. He needed balance to accomplish it as well. We see John doing the same thing. This roughneck fisherman who had calluses on his hands at the beginning of his life, when Jesus looked at him and said, hey, you, follow me. By the end of his life, he had learned some significant balance he could bob and weave. And today, with the rest of the time that we have together, I want to challenge you with this. John learned balance. He learned balance. Not only did he get to mature, but he also learned balance. And I want to look at three distinct things in the life of the Apostle John where he learned balance And Jesus did some amazing things in his life, and we can learn from that. Jesus matured John. He had a long runway. He had a long timeline for this to occur in. And during the course of his life, Jesus matured him. Let's look at the first one with this balance between truth and love. Truth and love. Listen, you can be loving to the detriment of truth. Yes, You can also be a truth teller and come across constantly as a Christian jerk. Yes, one of these days I'm going to do a series titled Christian Jerk, and we're going to lean into that. This is absolutely true. Are leaders born or are they made? Yes. John was probably born with some raw leadership gifts, but he leaned into the opportunity to lead better as Jesus made him more in the likeness of Jesus Christ himself, as he finds this balance between truth and love. He's born with passion. We looked at James a few weeks ago. James and John were nicknamed the sons of thunder. These are the same guys arguing about who's going to be greatest in God's kingdom. These are the same guys who want to call down fire from heaven and just kill a whole bunch of people because they're so fired up with passion for Jesus, right? He finds this balance between truth and love. At the end of John's life, he's called the apostle of love. 
Oftentimes, even in medieval art, we see him depicted very lovey-dovey. This is, uh, is an image of uh, uh, carving out of oak wood. Dates back like to the 1300s. I think it's nodding toward the Last Supper, and John is reclining and laying his, his head on Jesus' shoulder there. But remember, this is a dude who grew up in Bethsaida, the house of hunting and fishing. This dude was not a sissy. He had calluses on his hands. He knew how to mix it up early in life. A lot of those early stories are filled with that. Let me say it this way. Love was something that he learned from Jesus. It didn't come naturally to him. Forward progress. You see what I did there? Wove a football term in that. I, I love that. Be listening as you're watching the game tonight. I love it when an announcer, announcer says forward progress. It reminds me of my life in Jesus. This is why I like football. It's a series of first downs, completions. You make progress as you march down the field. It's not always about a touchdown, and the same is true in life. Forward progress is what we're aiming at, and this is exactly what we see in John's life. Ladies, there's maybe hope for your uncouth husband. At least Dawn hopes that for me. John, if we look at his life, he simply outlived some of his base impulses as he found balance along the way. Here's our hope for today. Whatever doesn't come naturally, we can learn from Jesus. Again, leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but following is exactly what he's called us to do. We see this balance of truth and love Paul, rather, in Ephesians, writes about this. He writes it, but I just wonder, is it possible he's picturing John when he writes this? Look at this. He says, instead of speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him, Jesus, who is the head that is Christ. Speak the truth in love. We study scripture by scripture. If you look at John and you look at Paul and contrast the two of them, Paul, he's kind of lawyer boy in some of his writings. He'll like take an idea and massage it from every angle. And well, what about this? What about this? Not so with John. He's a truth teller. He says, stop doing this. Start doing this. It's kind of like blue collar versus white collar. There's a very cut and dry way that John approaches truth. He uses the word truth 25 times in his gospel. He uses it another 20 times in his epistles. Truth was a big deal to him. But sometime in his younger years, John's zeal for truth was lacking in love and compassion for people. And Jesus says, this is a flag on the play. You're missing balance in your life. There's this story and I want to share it with you right now, but I want to show you the lead up to this story. The story we're going to look at, this is right before the story of John calling down fire from heaven saying, let's burn all these people up in your name, Jesus. In that case, and in the case we're going to look at, Paul, or John rather, is displaying an appalling intolerance, elitism, and a lack of love for people. Let me show you the context of what's happening here. I'm in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is a confusing statement. A lot of people misunderstand what this is all about. They say, well, did Jesus come back before some of these people died? What, what happened here? No, no. There's this moment that happens right after this. It's called the transfiguration. The big three. Peter, James, John, they get to bear eyewitness to the truth, this moment where heaven meets earth. 
It's called the transfiguration. They look and they see Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah, and all three of them are glowing. The Shekinah glory of God comes down. Heaven touches earth. The problem is, right after this happens, Jesus looks at Peter, James, and John and says, don't, don't tell anybody what happened yet. What? Are you kidding me? We got to see this with our eyes and we can't. I think they internalize some of that angst. They're walking down the road. Jesus overhears them talking. Some of their base human emotions are coming out in this moment. They start arguing about who is the greatest. I'm greater. I'm greater. No, I'm better than you. They're jockeying. Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? They get embarrassed. Actually, the text says they kept silent. They're embarrassed. They had it backwards. The first should be last and the last shall be first. Jesus knows this. He calls this out of them. And I think even in the middle of that, John is wrestling with this tension between truth and love. And he's seeking balance. And I think then he confesses. This is the story I want to look at. I think he's convicted by this, and he shares a confession with Jesus. I don't even think this had just happened. I think this is something that had happened earlier because he just kind of blurts out, he says, in chapter 9, verse 38. He says, teacher... We saw somebody driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he ain't from around here. We told him to stop because he's not one of us. Jesus rebukes him. I think John confessed because he was convicted. He had not yet found that balance between love and truth. This is what Jesus said, verse 39, don't stop him. Anyone who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me for whoever is not against us is for us. There's this balance he's seeking here. He hasn't quite yet found it yet on his timeline. He's called to balance because truth without love has no courtesy. It's just cruelty. Do these pants make me look fat? Be careful how you answer that, right? Truth without love has no courtesy. It's just cruelty. Cruelty would be answering that. Well, I'm so glad you asked me that question. I have been stewing on this for years. I need to tell you emphatically the answer to that is yes. The flip side of that, truth or rather love without truth has no sincerity. It's just pretense. Occasionally I'll see another dude in the lobby of our church or somewhere else. As a public speaker, I notice this. If you have spoken publicly, you recognize this as well. I have a nightmare of walking out on the platform with my fly down. <laughs> Occasionally, I'll see this, and I'll sidle up next to somebody in love, speak the truth, and say, hey, XYZ, PDQ, quickly, make this happen. If you ever see me walking around like that, <laughs> I would so much rather a public moment or a private moment of embarrassment rather than a public moment of embarrassment, right? Tell me. Speak the truth to me in love. Seek balance in that area of our lives. First John chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech. And I would, I would suggest he's saying there alone, but also with actions and in truth. 
On John's timeline, Jesus matured John. He matured him in the balance of truth and love. He also matured him in the balance of humility and ambition. Oh, Hamilton County friends. This is one for us to lean into as well, is it not? Because ambition without humility becomes arrogance. Even egotism. Or carried to a clinical extreme, narcissism. Ambition without humility becomes arrogance. John found balance in this in his life, the balance between humility and ambition. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, we talked about James in this passage a few weeks ago. Here's our friend John seeking balance. Sons of Zebedee came to Jesus' teacher. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Raw ambition. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? Flag on the play. Jesus calls them for holding there. Uh Uh-uh. Easy there, go-getter. Another time, or we keep reading here in uh, verse 42, Jesus called them together and he said this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. This may be the world view, way the world views this. Not so with us, guys. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If it's good enough for Jesus, shouldn't it be good enough for us? Those who want to be great must first learn to be humble. Jesus even gives some very good old-fashioned advice on this in Luke chapter 14. I'll let you read it later. Basically, he says, if you go to a wedding, don't take the best spot. Because somebody might show up who is a more important guest than you, and then the host is going to have to come over and whisper in your ear and embarrass you and ask you to move to a different spot. Rather, take the lowly position to begin with because you could always be elevated from that spot. Listen, this will preach. Whether you're in the lunchroom as a student or you're in the boardroom or a networking meeting in business, this will preach. Hamilton County overachievers, how is your balance right now on your timeline? How is your balance between ambition and humility? John did eventually learn the balance between ambition and humility. As a matter of fact, when you look at what he wrote, at the end of his timeline, you see that he'd made some straight, uh, some incredible strides toward that end. Throughout his gospel, John's gospel, for example, he never once mentions his own name. He oftentimes refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved as if that were the greatest honor on earth. And in fact, it is. He never paints himself into the foreground as the hero. As a matter of fact, he seems to awe at the marvel that Jesus would love him. He's humbled by it. He's the only one of the gospel writers that records the act of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. This made a lasting impression on John. His humility comes through in the gentle ways that he appeals to his readers in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as little children, beloved, 
He includes himself as a brother and a fellow child of God. There's tenderness, there's compassion in these expressions that show his humility. In the book of Revelation, he describes himself as, quote, your brother and the last remaining apostle. He's the patriarch of the church. But we see John's ambition in balance with humility. He's mellowed. So on John's timeline, we see this balance where Jesus matured John. There's a balance of truth and love, a balance of humility and ambition, and there's this balance of suffering and glory. At the end of John's timeline, we looked at the fact that Domitian was the emperor, and oh my goodness, they were throwing Christians to the lions. They were doing horrible things persecuting Christians. And John appropriately grabs this balance between suffering and glory. First, 21st century Christians in America, this might be the hardest one for us to grasp, but it's pretty important as well. Do you remember the transfiguration? John gets this glimpse, this peak into heaven. Well, he gets another peak into heaven when he writes the book of Revelation. Oh, I love this language here. He gives his audience who is suffering a peek into the balance between their present suffering and future glory. I would invite you sometime read Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and think about the hope that we have for the future, this glimpse that we get into heaven that John records for us. Look at this, Revelation chapter 4. After I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. He got to look and see glory. At once I was in the Spirit. God is showing me around his heaven. There before me was a throne in heaven and somebody sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. It's fantastic language. It's so other. Talks about 24 elders in thrones around the throne. And four fantastic creatures worshiping and they're singing over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And what did John do when he saw this picture of future glory? It says he wept and he wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. But then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Jesus, whom you love, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals, and then I saw a lamb. The lamb who had been crucified way back here on John's timeline, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He sees this picture into heaven, and then he had to come back. He had to come back into his context of suffering, and then he had to die a natural death, back to reality. He's exiled on the Isle of Patmos, hearing constant reports of his church friends being killed for their faith. Can you imagine the bitter tears that he must have wept? Suffering is the prelude to glory. Let's go back to John's timeline. Something happened during John's life. It happened to all of the disciples. Remember, we've talked about this each week. Eleven of the twelve died martyrs' deaths. Not so with John. He didn't die a martyr's death. He died of natural causes, but which is worse? 
dying by the sword, dying by crucifixion, or being the last man standing. He got a peek into heaven. Can you imagine the loneliness that he must have felt? What does this balance John found have to do with us? Remember, leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but following is exactly what he called you to do. So seek balance in your self-leadership. Let me just ask you this question. Are you finding balance in your personal timeline? Let's put them up on the screen. There's a balance of truth and love we've talked about today. There's the balance of humility and ambition. There's the balance, balance of suffering and glory. There's the balance of leading and following. How are you doing in each of those areas? We've been talking about this one for six weeks now. You know, we started this message talking about love songs. We probably should end it that way as well. As we seek balance with leading and following, can I just make a confession to you? I did not grow up in Betsaida, the house of hunting and fishing, but I, I do consider myself a fairly masculine dude. I mean, I couldn't hang with the guys on the gridiron tonight. They would squish me like a little bug, but I tend to think of myself as fairly masculine. Can I confess something to you? I think I'm a Swifty. You know what this is? I think I'm a closet Taylor Swift fan. Occasionally, I, I, I listen to one of her songs, and I just think, that is deep. I kind of like a singer-songwriter. There is some depth. She, she put out a, 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 uh, an album this past year, and there's a song. I keep catching myself humming it, singing it even. Finally, I Googled it because I needed to get the lyrics. If you're singing a song, you probably should figure out what you're singing. It's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, at tea time, everybody agrees. And then she drops like this lyrical bomb. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the anti-hero. I didn't know what an anti-hero was, so I Googled it. It's the narrative protagonist who is defined by their own self-interest. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. Reminded me of a story G.K. Chesterton told years ago. He had somebody write in through the paper to him, and, and uh, he replied back to them. And this was his reply. Dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Leading, following. Have you ever tried to pass somebody on a balance beam? That's pretty hard. Leadership is lauded. Following is underrated. But following is exactly what he's called us to do. Don't get in front of the line leader. That's Jesus. Where in your life right now do you need to take a break, take a moment, sit down? Where is that balance to be found right now between leading and following? Don't get in front of Jesus.